0: And lives of more opportunity and choice, I think that's one of the um, the other things that's sort of underappreciated. Um, your choice of job um, you know, a couple hundred years ago, literally half the workforce had to be farmers just to feed mm-hmm. the entire population. and most of the rest of the workforce was making basic necessities like clothing. Um, and today there's just like a vast you know array of jobs to choose from. Um, your choice of who to marry and when to marry uh, or whether to get married at all, your choice of whether to have children and, and when to have them and how many to have, um, your choice of where to live, uh, all of these like basic things that make up a life, an individual life, um, so many of these choices were just not open to people in the past or the choices were extremely restricted.
1: Uh, yeah, so I mean, why don't you Tell everybody, you know who you are, and give us a little bit of your background and history, and then then we'll talk plenty about what you're working on now.
0: Yeah, sure. So, hey, my name is Jason Crawford, um, and I run um, a a blog which has now become a nonprofit organization called The Roots of Progress, um, all about the the history of technology and the philosophy of progress. Um, And yeah, I used to be in tech myself. So I spent almost 20 years um, in the sort of Silicon Valley tech world. My background's in computer science. I was a software engineer, um, an engineering manager, and a tech startup founder. co-founded a couple of tech startups and then um, started working on this blog as like a side project. It was a hobby um, and got totally obsessed with it and ended up deciding that there was nothing I'd rather do more than work on the blog full time. So now here I am.
1: That's really cool. I remember, I think when we first met, um, I believe I was trying to recruit you, as I am always trying to recruit people uh to come work at Lambda School.
0: Yes. And you were kind of You very like... nearly did. You were good.
1: <laughs> <laughs> and this was like uh this was a twinkle in your eye, right? you I think you'd had the idea and you were interested in it, but there was not like there wasn't a super I mean, there's not a super clear path for making that a full-time thing. No. and you're just like there was just something like eating at you that it felt like you had to, you had to get out. What, what was that? How would you describe why you felt? And I remember when I met you, I was like, I absolutely want you to work at Lambda school. But man, when you, when you talk about what is now roots of progress, I don't even know if it was called that then um, there's just like, the passion is so clear. Like I, I may have said, which is something a founder should never do. Like maybe you should go do that um, instead. (laughs) Um obviously would prefer for you to come work for us, but
0: <laughs> what what is it that got you so fired up? Yeah. Um so yeah, so like for context, at that time it was just a blog and it was a blog I'd been doing in my spare time, totally as a hobby. Um it was the roots of progress. Like that was the name I chose for it in the beginning of 2017. Um and I'd been writing it for a while. At first, I I literally didn't care who read it. I figured it would just be a few of my friends, and that was cool. I set it up with a Twitter account and a mailing list and, you know, some basic trappings of like, this is a blog that you can follow. But I was also, um, you know, I said, look, I'm not going to I'm not going to stress over like promoting this or anything. Um, But then one day, uh, one of my posts just sort of took off and went viral. It hit number one on Hacker News. It got retweeted a bunch. um, And this was the post about the history of the bicycle. Uh, and mm-hmm. why was the bicycle not invented until like the late 1800s when on the face of it, you might not obviously see any reason why we couldn't have had bicycles in like the Roman empire or something. And, uh, this was, this was originally just something I, I, I just posed this question on Twitter and like a bunch of people responded and it got so interesting that I decided to write it up, like do my, like to actually go research it and write it up as a what, blog. What, what even gave you that question? How did that, you know, so, uh, were you riding so, you know, a bicycle I was just, and like, okay, why? so the, the, The impetus for this whole thing was, I really wanted to understand the story of human progress. It started out as maybe I just want to understand the industrial revolution, but then I sort of very quickly broadened it to like, no, this is about the story of human progress. How did I get obsessed with that? Well, um, a big part of it is just noticing how much this sort of thing underlies people's views about the world, their views about society and politics. you know, I, I realized at one point that like when people are talking about political issues, um, often they can't agree on solutions because they don't even agree on what the problems are. So mm-hmm. like, you know, and on one side, you might have someone who thinks that like um, global warming is the most um, important issue, climate change. And like, that is the thing that's going to kill us all if we don't put all our energy and resources on it. And then on the other side, you might have somebody who comes in and says like, no, that 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 climate change stuff is totally overhyped. Um, but what you're not paying attention to is like the national debt. It's the twenty, thirty trillion dollars in national debt. That's the ticking time bomb that nobody is gonna write. And then like a third person might walk into the room and be like, no, both of you are wrong. It's uh it's racial injustice and um you know, is is the thing that is eating away at our society. And so like they're never gonna agree on what we should do as a society at any sort of political level, because they don't each one actually dismisses the like the problems of the other ones, let alone the solutions. So I started thinking about well, what problems do I care about, and what kind of informs my worldview? And I realized that like a basic fact of history that informs my worldview that I think is super important is just the is the fact of human progress. Is the fact that our living standards, the way we live, is just completely transformed over the last couple of hundred years. Um, and and life used to be pretty crappy, frankly, and uh, none of us really want to go back and live in that world. Um, but it was like that for thousands of years, tens of thousands of years. Uh, And then, you know, suddenly, kind of in the last couple hundred years, things got a whole lot better. And like that is that is possibly the most amazing fact in all of human history. And uh, I think it deeply affects my worldview because when I think about what kind of society I want to live in, like the first thing I think about is, well, what kind of society makes that possible, and, and how do we what keep that, that going? Let's do more of that. Yeah, let's yeah. do more of that. Right? Like we should be like I mean, I think if you care about human life and well-being and happiness. And sort of people flourishing and, and thriving, then you should really, you know, you should look at history and be like, yeah, wow. how, how did we get all those vaccines in the last hundred, twenty years? And how did we and how do we get antibiotics and clean water? And how did we get like abundant food and end famine um in most parts of the world? And and how is it that everybody now, you know, sleeps on like um a spring mattress or a foam mattress instead of literally a bed of straw that you would like? Like get fresh straw for your bed every night, and then in the morning, like take the straw from the bed and put it into the fireplace, because that's what you were burning for fuel. And that was mm-hmm. in good times, by the way. And in bad times, you'd be like pulling down straw from the roof, um, you know, to like make your bedding or whatever. It, it, the world's been completely transformed. So
1: so if you're going to convert me to your worldview, kind of the, the first thing to understand is that. It's not as if, and I, you know, you see this sometimes floating around like, oh, 250 years ago, everything was so idyllic and everybody lived in nature. And like, so first and foremost, it sounds like as a wholesale rejection of that notion and actually a a relatively deep understanding of what life used to be like, um, first of all. Um, And then, and then you, you talk about I mean, you know, fast forward to today, and certainly there are no shortage of problems today, but you would argue far, far better than it was, I mean, certainly a thousand years ago, certainly 200 years ago. Um, but you you talk about that thing, right? There, you know, if you look at, and there are different ways to measure it, maybe GDP is the right measure, maybe it's the wrong measure, but, you know, it looks like the startup-iest up and to the right graph ever, if you're, you know, looking at GDP over the long run. What is that thing? How is that just do you call that progress? Or is there is there a more finite way to, to look at that?
0: Hmm. Yeah, I mean, so progress, I think there are different there are different types of progress. I think in the very broadest sense of progress, you want to think you wanna define it sort of in, in humanistic terms. Progress hmm. is whatever allows people to have better lives, longer, happier, healthier, you know, lives, um, and lives of more opportunity and choice. I think that's one of the um, the other things that's sort of underappreciated. Um, your choice of job um, you know a couple hundred years ago, literally half the workforce had to be farmers just to feed mm-hmm. the entire population, and most of the rest of the workforce was making basic necessities like clothing. Um, and today, there's just like a vast you know array of jobs to choose from. Um, your choice of who to marry and when to marry uh, or whether to get married at all. Your choice of whether to have children and and when to have them and how many to have, um your choice of where to live. Uh, all of these like basic things that make up a life, an individual life. um so many of these choices were just not open to people in the past or the choices were extremely restricted. Um, uh, and not to mention, you know, even on the on the level of sort of our intellectual and spiritual life, you know you have access today, anybody with an internet connection, which is what the majority of of adults on the planet, uh, now have access to essentially the entirety of the world's knowledge, art, philosophy, and culture, um, instantly, pretty much, you know, at a, at, a, at a glance, um, and so all of those things are just uh, are, are just different ways in which our lives are better. Um, now, material progress in technology and industry and the economy is, I think, a key part of this overall sort of human progress, closely linked with it. You know, but not exactly identical. And so, one of the big questions that people ask, and that I think this um this sort of new discipline, maybe of progress studies needs to answer, is, okay, but you know, it basically like, is progress good? Is material progress human progress? right? is is material mm-hmm. a well um a progress actually good for human well-being um and and does it lead to overall you know flourishing?
1: Well, I think there's a there's a broad narrative today that you know kind of we've gone too far, like it was good, you know, for some people up until the industrial revolution or up until social media or, um, you know, up until recently. And now we, you know, we have processed foods and we have suburban sprawl and we have whatever else. Um, So how how do you view that? How do you determine when it's good? or, Or do you just say, you know, Progress, net, net is better than whatever trade-offs we have to make to get it, so you know, how do you think about that?
0: Yeah, so I think there's a couple of things. Um, I mean, one thing to acknowledge is that like progress is messy. It's not like a simple, lean, clean, linear story where everything just got better all the time in every dimension for everyone. Um, you know, there were uh, there were a lot of things that were better in some really important dimension and had a bad side effect. Um, I don't know. I think about this like medicine, right? You're going to take medicine for a disease. You understand that like sometimes the medicine has side effects. Those side effects might be bad. Um, but the question is not just are the side effects bad. Um, you know, if you take if you take chemotherapy uh, for cancer, for instance, it can give you nausea, right? Like you wouldn't right. just just reject the chemo out of hand because uh, you're like, well, I don't, you know, it gives you nausea. You got to look at well, but is that better than the alternative? The alternative might be dying um mm-hmm. and also are there ways to mitigate those side effects right and so throughout the course of history you know we've um found new energy sources and set up factories and so forth and one of the things that led to was pollution okay well um are there ways or, you know are there things we can do about the pollution turns out actually we've done a lot about pollution and air quality has gotten a lot better and so forth right um similar thing with cities so uh, uh, in the nineteenth century when people were moving more and more, you know, leaving the countryside and moving to the cities, they were doing that for a good reason, for opportunity, um, for for jobs, for, you know, being just around other people. Um, there were lots of good reasons to move to the cities, but um the cities were getting crowded and filthy and they had much higher rates of disease. You're actually much more likely to die um from uh, from a disease that you caught in a city in the mid-19th century than if you were in the country. Uh, but eventually, we solved that too. We we had the germ theory, uh, which which was developed in the late nineteenth uh, century. We um, we put down you know clean water infrastructure, uh, started having better food handling processes, pasteurized our milk, um, vaccines, antibiotics, etc. And so now, um, you know, both the city and the country have uh, today have you know much better um, rates of uh, of infectious disease, much 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 lower and much much lower mortality from disease, um, you know, than anybody did in the past. So. We, we, we created an opportunity with cities that caused a problem with disease. And then later we solved the disease problem as well. So progress creates lots of problems, but the solution to those problems is usually just more progress. Hmm.
1: That's interesting. So, I mean, if you are going to... So if you looked at a newspaper in I don't know what time frame you're thinking, maybe that's the late eighteen hundreds, would they say, "Oh, there's a giant disease problem in cities, and you know our cities are fundamentally unsustainable. Maybe we need to go back to the countryside, um, and then somebody found a way to innovate their way out of it, right And I don't know what you know what what time frame that is. I'm not enough of a student of history to know but yeah. do you see you know if if you look at, for example, you know global warming as an example there is a there is a narrative where you know it's all just going to get worse and worse until we all fry and it's just a matter of how long that will take you know I'm not a big investor in anything carbon related but you could have carbon capture or you know mitigate with carbon credits or you know that kind of thing um do you think that even that like level of problem is something that we can just innovate our way out of? Or is that a, is that far too optimistic of a view and just not being unwilling to look at our, you know, human scale problems?
0: Um, Yeah, I mean, when you say we quote, we can just innovate our way out of things, that <laughs> sounds a little flippant, like it's not gonna be a problem, it'll be easy, don't worry about it. And I sure. think that's probably a wrong view to take. Um. But if you maybe if you just if you drop the just and you say we can innovate our way out of problems, then yes, I absolutely believe that we can. Um, I wrote so I think a, a good historical um, sort of uh, reference point for this, and I like historical um, reference points because you can you know how they turned out, so you can sort mm-hmm. of look back on them and you have all the benefit of hindsight. Um, but one that I wrote about for the MIT Technology Review. Um, was the case of uh, a scientist named William Crooks and his warnings about what he called the wheat problem, which was basically the world was running out of fertilizer at the end of the 1800s. So the population of the world was was growing. Agriculture was expanding. Um, uh, In the United States, they were expanding onto more and more uh, fertile farmland throughout the country. And uh, people were using a lot more fertilizers. And one of the places they were getting this from was they had discovered... Uh, sources of fertilizer, including... um, Okay, this is a little hilarious. There are these islands off uh, the coast of Peru in South America where it, it almost never rained, and they had accumulated untold centuries or millennia of seagull droppings. Hmm. And this, like seagull guano, was some of the most powerful natural fertilizer known to humanity at this point. And so they, they find are literally, a giant repository of seagull dung. Yeah, right. And they are literally mining this like it's a rock wow. quarry or something. Right? They're going the in and they're like digging up seagull, seagull guano, yeah. and they're putting it on boats and they're shipping it all over the world because it's this incredibly powerful fertilizer. Anyway. They were blasting through the reserves of that very quickly, and they basically used it all up within decades. And so, um, so this guy Crooks, he gives this, he gives this big speech uh, where he says, hey, world, we are running out of fertilizer, and we are going to run out of food if we don't solve this problem. Um, and it's funny because on the one hand, he was sort of an alarmist. Right, he's making he's, he's he's telling people, "Whoa, we've got this big problem. This is like a huge thing. We all need to pay attention to." And he was kind of denounced as an alarmist. Um, and there were people who wrote rebuttals uh, of, all, of all sorts, and um, even this one guy who was like, "Yeah, you just." You know, ever since Thomas Malthus, we've had like so many discussions about this kind of thing because it turned out there was another guy yeah, at the every time. Every twenty years, was,
1: there's another one of you cranks that says we're going to run out of X, and that'll be yeah, the end. right.
0: It turns out at around the time there was a guy uh, calling peak coal um, who, mm. who thought that was afraid that Britain was going to run out of coal, and that would be like the end of of Britain's you know dominance in the world. Um, there were other people warning about uh, running out of precious metals like gold and silver and so forth. And so here comes this guy who says, we're going to run out of fertilizer. But the other interesting thing about the way Crooks framed the problem was in the very speech where he warned about this problem, he also talked about what the solutions could be. And he was basically calling to the chemists of the world to step forward and find a way to create synthetic fertilizer. Um, And he even talked about a potential way that this could happen. Um, using the nitrogen on the atmosphere as the as the basis for the fertilizer, and he kind of went into some of the details of how it could happen. So he was fairly optimistic that like a solution would be found, but he also wanted to make it really clear that if we if we just sat on our butts, we're facing a dire problem here. Yeah,
1: it's an interesting framing, and I, I think you know you, you can look at the problems of today and how many how many of us are alarmist and offering potential solutions, right? Versus just, oh my gosh. and the the thing that i found is interesting in in reading roots of progress is there's so many times when honestly it feels like okay this is it like we've reached the peak you know we've maximized all the progress that there is to have been maximized and like this is the thing that like we won't be able to solve in the long run and then eventually and sometimes in unintuitive ways uh you know people find a way to to solve it and it feels like, you know, at certain times today, we're not quite as optimistic where there, there is, well, in some things, there is all the alarmism and none of the optimism. And some things there are, there's all the optimism and none of the alarmism. And you kind of have to have both to some extent, right? Like uh, this gentleman, Crooks was his name? Yeah. He wasn't, he wasn't wrong, right? Like you can be alarmist and right. And you could probably make an argument that given the data that, you know, the Malthusian folks had like, they were right. They just fundamental assumptions shift under your feet. And if maybe Malthusian is the wrong analogy, but,
0: um, no, I mean, that is a funny thing about Malthus that he wrote at this time where he was like, what he wrote was he wrote right at the time when what he wrote was true for almost all of history. And right at the time when it was about to stop being true so it was like a very good retrospective but then as a guide to the future turned out to be in a you know in a certain way completely wrong um so in that in that article um in MIT tech review i sort of distinguished between two kind of wrong approaches one is the sort of blind optimism which is which i call complacency where you're just like no nah, there's not mm-hmm. even a problem and then the other is blind pessimism which i call defeatism where you mm-hmm. just where you can't even see the potential for solutions and both of those are mistakes. And so the, the, the alternative, um, I, I just call it solutionism, right? Where we acknowledge the reality of problems, but we're also uh, committed to, you know, doing everything we can to find solutions. Um, and you've written about a few of these that I find absolutely fascinating. Um,
1: let's, uh, one was, was it a wheat thrasher that we talked about? What was the, uh, the yeah, take the, us through no, that no, a little bit.
0: Yeah, I wrote something about the history of the threshing machine, which seems a little obscure, but it turns out to have, I think, some really interesting, um, sort of broader lessons about like the importance of infrastructure, especially manufacturing infrastructure. Um, okay, so so really briefly, like threshing is a stage in the in the the, the harvesting and processing of wheat. Um, when you cut down wheat, you get uh, these grains that are in these really hard. Uh, they got this really hard casing around it and you have to get the seed which is the part that you eat out of the hard casing that is indigestible um so historically this was done by literally you would just pile the grain like on the floor and you would beat it with a stick um or you would even uh literally like get animals to walk over it or to drag a big heavy board over it um however you did it it was like this violent process you got to you have to i mean the word threshing and the word thrashing used to be like synonyms basically. And so like, like mm. think about giving somebody a thrashing, right? That's that's what you're doing to the wheat. Um, Got it. So for a long time, you know, people thought, well, okay, can we maybe have a machine do this? And they had a machine to do the next step, which was milling, right? So when you when you want to grind the seed into flour... There were um, there were grain mills for that since I don't know the Roman Empire I, be- I believe it's a relatively really. simple problem just It's a pretty simple it. problem
1: smash it really hard versus yeah, smash Exactly it kind of you hard. just get
0: a huge stone and then another huge stone and you kind of and you just put the grain in between them and you turn it around and then the 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 grain gets ground up. Um, and so it, it wasn't it wasn't like a crazy idea that you could have a threshing mill as well as a grinding mill. Um, And so people tried to create these things, but for a long time and and throughout the 1700s, there are all these sort of attempts at people doing it and people even patent machines and basically none of them work. Um, And so even though people are talking about this since even the 1600s and definitely through the 1700s, you don't really get adoption until the very end of the 1700s in like Scotland and um, and the early 1800s in the US. And so I dug into, okay, why is it? when you read about the trials of some of these early machines, basically the machines just broke. Like they just didn't work reliably at all. Um, Sometimes it was reported that the machine would like tear itself to pieces. If something just got a little bit out of whack. Um, Part of the way these machines are working is maybe they've got like um, pairs of teeth or pegs or whatever that are sort of like going like right past each other to try to, to try to, because you've got to, what you got to do is sort of like rub the, the um the the casing off of the grain, right? Sure. Um, so you don't want to get it so 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 close that it smashes the grain, but you got to get it just in there, so it's kind of the this hard casing is sort of rubbed off of the grain. um and so one thing that would happen is if the machine got just like a little bit out of alignment, well, those teeth could like run into each other, and now and the machine is over. like damaging itself. Yeah. um, and then even if that didn't happen, the machine could damage the grain as well so um basically, it took like a really good engineer. To even to construct one of these machines and like tune it to the right tolerances so that it could um so that it could succeed um, and what you find so the so the interesting thing that I found was like, okay, if you invented a threshing machine today, what would you do? well you'd set up a factory to sell it and you'd like take orders uh from across the country around the world and you'd like ship things to people and you'd make them in your factory and so forth well that's not how stuff was even made in those days um in those days, farm equipment was typically made by like the local village blacksmith or carpenter or whatever. And there just weren't like national markets for these things. So when you even look at the advertisements um, that these inventors put out, when somebody said, I've invented a threshing mill, he didn't say, and you can buy it from me, write to me at this address. What he said was, I will sell you the plans, and then you can take it to your local carpenter and like he'll make it for you. <laughs> um. Hmm. But it just didn't work because these machines needed to be made to like really fine tolerances are like finer than what like a random blacksmith or carpenter could do. And so um, it was really uh, the sort of revolution that happened around the end of the 1700s and and into the 1800s was in manufacturing technology and especially in a new class of machines uh, called – or a new class of tools called machine tools that were um, things like drill bits and – Sort of uh, machines for grinding away and and um, you know milling and otherwise shaping parts that were specifically designed to be high precision, so that any workman could without too much trouble make um, a very finely tuned part. Um, overall, the history of precision is like fascinating and super underrated. <laughs> um, I think in, in kind uh. of the history of technology, it's one of these things that's just invisible to us today and easy to overlook. Um, But um, yeah, so the threshing machine couldn't really take off until basically manufacturing improved. And in fact, into the 1820s and 30s, you see that um, some inventors are actually contracting with like an engine manufacturing company uh, to, to make their threshing machine. And now they're saying, so later on, they're saying, yeah, if you want one of my machines, write to this engine manufacturing company, they have a license on my patent and they can make it for you. So it just really speaks to like the importance of manufacturing infrastructure to be able to even give us, you know, the you know the kind of machines that now are all around us and that you know we use every day. But there was a time when like it was almost impossible for these things to have a market because there just wasn't the infrastructure of like the people and the factories and the tools that could even create this kind of stuff.
1: Yeah, and it's it's also interesting, you know, if you think about the people who are building the tools for manufacturing they probably didn't have the end in mind, right? They weren't thinking, oh, if I build this tool, then I can then, you know, go on and build a threshing machine. They're just like, I'm going to build a bunch of general purpose tools that operate at a different level of, uh, what was the word you used? Um, Precision. Yeah, precision, yeah. And then people are going to probably do cool stuff with that. Let's see. And Some of the first
0: ones were built, yeah, were built for special purpose um, applications as, uh, I mean, you, you... you being in Silicon Valley, you know, you, like the, the, the killer app comes, like the platform is built on the killer app, right? You don't have mm-hmm. a generic platform with no applications that, that somehow takes off. There's like a, there's a need, there's a purpose in an application. One of the first purposes for um, machine tools was making locks. So as you can imagine, mm-hmm. locks have to be made to very high precision, right? Um, because you want your key to turn the lock, you know, smoothly without any jankiness Um, But you don't want a key that's like even slightly off, you do not want to be able to turn the lock at all. And so locks are just like inherently this high precision thing. And at the end of the 1700s, there was this guy Brahma who had invented a new um, you know, special type of lock. And he was like, not going to be able to make it like to manufacture it uh, at any sort of affordable price until he met this other guy, Henry Maudsley. Who um, was this sort of mechanical genius? And he's like, I can build these machines for you. And Maudsley Mm -hmm. built a set of machines, of machine tools that were basically machines specifically made to make the the parts of the lock. Um, Later, Maudsley was involved in another project uh, to um, make, again, a set of machines to do a process for the British Navy of creating pulley blocks. So, pulley blocks are this like large. Casing that uh, ropes go through. You need a whole lot of them to build uh, a ship, and the navy was building a lot of ships. And this is like, I think this is in the middle of the Napoleonic Wars, so they need like a lot of ships. And they've got over a hundred people, you know, in some factory uh, making these blocks out of like big oak pieces and sanding them and carving them and everything by hand. Um, I mean, using hand tools, and they just like can't turn out enough blocks to meet demand for the navy. And so Maudsley um, uh, and this other engineer, Brunel, come along and they designed this whole um, factory in this set of tools. And basically like 10 guys can turn out all of the, uh, all the blo- pulley blocks that the Navy needs based on these tools. So this is some of the origin of these machine tools. It was for these specific crucial applications. It's fascinating. And I think
1: one of the, one of the pieces that can tend to get lost in all of this is the importance of markets and like how much market sizing affects what can be produced so you know as an example you mentioned you know the threshing machines there may not have been enough for one person to you know invest all that time and effort and energy and figure out the whole thing just for the purpose of threshing um but once you have you know one guy building a general purpose tool for one thing and you know you're 80 percent of the way there and somebody can take that and adapt it and then there's a threshing machine like the unlikelihood of somebody going from zero to one with all of those things, you know, but being able to take other innovations and stack them on top of each other and build things that wouldn't otherwise make sense is, you know, extremely underrated. You know, when yeah, I totally I uh, mean, spent a few years in the Soviet Union and you go to the former Soviet Union and you go to factories there and everything was single purpose built, right? The hmm. they have one and there wasn't great information transfer so like the you know the coal mining in leningrad would be totally different from the coal mining in moscow and everything i mean they're brilliant engineers but they were they're reinventing the wheel in sometimes a literal sense but again and again and again because the without that market dynamic of hey if i build it in this factory i can go sell it to all the other soviet factories it didn't exist so you had like this you know, you had a bunch of experiments of like, let's see what we build in this factory versus that factory versus that factory, but you didn't have anywhere near the, there, there's no transferability of what happened one place to another. And I think that can get, that's fascinating, you know, in this story, because it's not, it's not a single guy who sat down and, you know, soup to nuts built the entire thing. It's a bunch of different people building different things and stacking them on top of each other until you get to, you know, the the end utility and manufacturing operates like that frequently. Like that's often how manufacturing goes.
0: That's a fascinating story about the Soviet Union. I had not heard that. And it's particularly interesting because like one of the communist criticisms of capitalism was that it would be inefficient because of duplication and not enough like standardization and systemization, right? And Mm -hmm. you're you're saying that actually maybe under the hood, there was maybe less standardization.
1: Well, I think, yeah, I mean, so there... There's truth to that, right? Because you only do things once. But then, you know, in capitalism, there is less standardization, but there's more experimentation, but in a different way. Like, and I, you know, to some extent, the the notion that the Soviet Union was totally standardized is cute in theory, but when you know, when it when it gets to practice, it's actually really hard to standardize everything all the time and at the end of the day you might have somebody in you know one factory making a different decision from somebody in another factory and you know having run a school that we tried to run very centralized for a very long time like just the process of passing that information from different places to keep everything in lockstep is is difficult and i think you know the and i think about it through the the company culture lens right you have some of the companies that have grown the most successfully from a Silicon Valley standpoint, you know, I, I look at the the Amazons and the Ubers of the world. And Amazon at one point had very explicitly a goal to not centralize, to not um standardize, because it, it just it can be so inefficient to try to do that that, you know, if every if we end up with 10 things that are slightly different, well, at least, you know, we everybody's going instead of trying to spend all their time organizing. And that's with code, which I would argue is much easier to do than most manufacturing would be. You're just, you're all operating off the same GitHub. But The super
0: counterintuitive thing that Bezos said at some point was like, I don't want to find out ways for our teams to communicate more. We should be finding out ways that they need to communicate less. Yeah, Um, people are talking to each other in a failed case.
1: That's wild. I would have, I mean, it makes sense because, and That is a pattern I've seen in many Silicon Valley companies that the notion of, you know, the code does the talking or, um, you know, the the product is how we communicate with each other is very powerful. Um, But yeah, very counterintuitive
0: and not what you would learn in most management theory classes. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Um, You mentioned the importance of markets. I think that's kind of the other half of the lesson of the uh, threshing machine story. Is that um, like before in the in the 1700s? It was even if you had invented and could manufacture a threshing machine, it was really hard to create a market for it and like sell it broadly to recoup the investment that you would have put into into all of that. Then you can Um, sell three
1: of them. It was
0: difficult to ship anything over any kind of a long distance because there were no railroads. Um, There were you know like you would be shipping things by probably by barge and canal and. Um, and then, if you had to get it over land, it's like going on a wagon. Um, even in the in the like later in the 1840s or so, um, when Cyrus McCormick was working on another crucial piece of agricultural machinery, which was the reaping machine, um, when he sent out some of his you know early early orders to early customers. Like some of his machines arrived late and uh, some of them, you know, did not arrive in time for the harvest season. And sometimes he didn't collect payment on them and stuff. And it was all because the transportation networks at that time were just terrible. Like we had not built out, um, you know, railroads across the country and uh, you just couldn't get things. Everything was like sort of like slow and unreliable um, and very dependent on the weather. Uh, Similar with just sort of like with information, right? I mean, how would you advertise um, you know, or find a, you know, how would you find a market for these things? Um, so, uh, the, you know, transportation and information infrastructure today has created these like highly efficient global markets. And that means that, you know, if you need whatever 10,000 or a hundred thousand customers for your product to, to make it a viable business, like it's just easier than it's ever been to find those, those customers wherever they are around the world. And that just means we yeah. can have more products even. Even niche ones.
1: For all the flaws of Facebook and Google, um, I, I can think of fifty companies that would not exist without one or either one or both of those. Right? I think yeah. that's. I'm, I'm actually surprised that those companies don't lean into that more because it's always just, oh, you're taking our data and you know, advertising, and you know, nobody likes advertising, but somebody likes advertising. Like
0: you know, there's me- an old saying that's like, uh, everybody hates advertising until they lose their dog or sell their car. Uh, yeah. And I would add, and I would add or launch their startup. Yeah. No. I. And Then, yeah, you, then I, you suddenly realize, wait, advertising is actually really useful.
1: If I were running Facebook or if I were running PR at Facebook, which I should absolutely not do, that would be a terrible idea. <laughs> but I, all of my focus would be on, you know, yeah, we're you know, we we collect your data so we can show you more targeted ads. But that's not, you know, it's not about the user experience of that. It's about. These companies that we're enabling to reach customers in a better way yeah. than they ever would have been able to maybe that's too abstract to, to Facebook's
0: to credit really they've really actually been doing some of that I've to. seen them run ads that are basically like hey people have ideas for small businesses and they need to like reach their customers and and uh, you know targeted ads like help make that happen and it's it's kind of yeah. true
1: yeah no it, oh it's very true I mean imagine the the level of you know niche product that you can get to market now versus if it was just mass media, TV and billboards like you know it's it wouldn't make sense for probably I don't know a huge number of the percentage of products on Facebook or Google to to just blanket advertise. Um but anyway, um what what's in all of your you know research, what has been what has surprised you?
0: Yeah. Um certainly been you know, some some things I didn't expect were just um, some of these some of these things that are kind of invisible and hidden. Um, the precision thing is is one of them. Precision has enabled a lot of stuff, not just machines that work better, but like um, one of the things precision enabled was interchangeable parts. Um, so well, this is sort of mind blowing, but like it used to be that it, even in a factory where you were assembling, you know, say a clock. Um, you wouldn't necessarily expect all your parts to just fit together. And so you'd pick sure. up a part and it wouldn't fit. And you'd have to just like pick up a file and like file it down until it fits. Uh, and this is assembling, right? Um, and so it turned out high precision, um, you know, manufacturing enabled us to create parts that were, um, that just fit together with no filing. And sure. that actually sped up manufacturing. Standardized and- the entire factory. Yeah, totally. Um yeah I mean, so there's a number of um there's a number of things like this uh when I was looking into agriculture uh it turns out there is um there's a whole story of breeding uh it's amazing how many varieties of um of every crop there are you know we talk about farming wheat or corn or rice or something, but um it turns out that uh, all of these plants have like many, many different varieties that are subtly different from each other. And everyone is adapted to like its own local climate. Um, every mm-hmm. plant has to be adapted to its latitude. So like how, many, how much sun do you get on, on different days of the year and how much does that vary? Uh, its own local temperature, uh, is the ground freezing over? How much rain does it get? Um, what's the soil like? And so on and so forth. And so, um, you know, farmers have always, I mean, throughout all of history, have been just like experimenting with different crops and trying to figure out what grows best where and actually breeding uh, different varieties. But this turned out to be a huge area of experimentation. And um, as agriculture got more scientific and as there was more kind of like deliberate research focus going into it, um, there, was, uh, there was a lot of effort on breeding um, better and better crops. And that was just, you know, that was something that was just basically invisible to me, right? I mean, I knew we had machines, yeah. I knew we had fertilizer, but I didn't realize how much breeding mattered.
1: No, my, my father-in-law is actually a, a hay farmer and they have, um, they have one of the farms that they have in Northern California breeds Timothy hay, which is this very specific strain that only grows in like weird parts of Oregon because it has the right, you know, right amount of, uh, what, what is it? Humidity and the right amount. And, They have farms in Utah that grow different stuff, but the Timothy hay is like it literally trades at ten to a hundred times the price of the stuff that they grow in Utah because it's it's so fascinating and it you know it it, and even you know I'm at the the Rome Research Compound now and they're uh, trying to like breed a kind of chicken that a monk has been working on breeding since like the 60s and it's really like. It's this individual process of somebody it takes forever first of all to to breed things, and there's some element of random chance with genetics but um or you know you have to understand the, the probabilities. It's not a, a sure fire shot every time, but uh what what are some of the interesting kind of breeds that have happened? I'm sure there are a number that have just yeah you know we take for granted
0: well um one of the biggest uh, breeding success stories of the 20th century actually was um, hybrid corn. Um, hmm. So for a long time, you know, people were trying to breed various varieties of corn. Um, you know, they successfully adapted corn to many different parts of the of the U.S. Um, but one thing that they were not really successful at for a long period of time was getting better yields. So yield being how much corn do you get out of a given like acre, you know, planted right um or or you know per or per seed that you plant. Um and it's interesting, uh so some so some people um so at one point they started um optimizing corn for something a little bit different, which was they started uh trying to optimize for protein content. Um and this was particularly because corn was used as feed for livestock. And so Mm -hmm. they wanted to make it a better quality, better nutritious feed by having higher, higher protein corn. So okay, so they get so they plant a bunch of corn, they test it all for like what you know, which is the highest protein. Oh, cool. These plants have the highest protein. Let's like replant those ones. Right. And then they did this for a few generations. Okay. So the protein content of the corn is going up, but, um, something else is happening, which is that the yield is going down. Um, and so the, these ears of corn, they're like high in protein. The kernels are, but they're starting, the ears themselves are starting to get smaller and kind of shriveled and shrunken and have fewer grains on them. And, um, And so one researcher looks researcher looks at this, and he's like, "I think the problem is that we're inbreeding." Mm. Um, So by selecting these high protein um, strains, they were sort of accidentally inbreeding the corn, and you know making this like very purebred um, strain. But um, what they found was that if you uh, if you crossed these strains, uh, if you crossed two inbred strains, you got something that was much higher yielding than the parents um and this had generally been known it was generally sort of known that like taking um you know taking two kind of like different lines and crossing them would uh, you know would would give you a uh, a more vigorous plant they called it vigor at the time it's just it's just like how much does the plant grow so this phenomenon was called hybrid vigor um or technically heterosis hmm. and so they're looking at this and like well this is really interesting um the thing about corn is um, like okay quick quick primer on plants so uh, uh, most plants are kind of like um, hermaphrodites, so so plants reproduce sexually in that they have like the equivalent of like egg and sperm. It's pollen is the sperm, right? Um, but most plants produce both, um, and so it's very possible for plants to fertilize themselves. Um, and uh, some plants, like wheat, do this very commonly. Corn is um, much more sort of promiscuous, like the pollen just floats on the wind and it's very um, easy, like any ear of corn will sort of tend to just get pollinated by other plants. And so what this means is it's actually very difficult to maintain like a pure strain of corn without very careful selective um, processes. So, um, So they start doing this and they're like, again, they're getting more protein, but they're getting lower yields. And they're like, okay, I think we're inbreeding. They find that they can have these crosses that have higher yields, um, and so they're they're experimenting they're like, "Wow, this could be a way to actually finally increase yields, like like deliberately inbreed for a while to get sort of a pure line so that we know what mm. essentially we know what we're getting, right we don't have like the random the randomness of um, heterozygosity um but uh, but then, have make these deliberate crosses. so what we want to do is create lots of different inbred strains, cross all of them, figure out which are the best crosses, and then like those are the ones that we can use going forwards and so, like this is That's a really good. interesting proposal to like get control over this process that previously was basically just super random um because of kind of the genetic luck of the draw. The problem was that um, it was so you could make seed that was very high yielding the problem was it was an expensive process because the parents of this seed were very low yielding so you do a bunch of work you get these <laughs> you get a small amount of seed <laughs> um, and the, but then that seed is like very productive and so for a while there was like no way past this problem it was like it, it, it was like scientifically or theoretically interesting but it wasn't practically or economically useful until finally somebody had what in retrospect seems like a really simple idea What if we cross the crosses? So he made a double cross. Um, So he took. So he took. So you start with four inbred strains. You cross A and B, and you get an AB cross. You cross C and D, and you get a CD cross. And then you cross those two. Then AB CD cross. Exactly. So it turns out when you do that, you 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 once again get something that has like very high um, yields. But since the parents were also high yielding, now you have an economical process. And this just like revolutionized um, corn you know, seed production. Um, and uh, especially during the drought years, the Dust Bowl, the, the 1930s in the US, it turns out some of these um, hybrid strains were really outperforming in the drought. Um, and so very quickly, uh, you know, most corn growing in America converted over to these uh, hybrid corn.
1: What, what years was this? Like what, you mean a time frame.
0: Yeah, so the initial experimentation happening. was done in like the 1890s through early decades of the 1900s and then the um I think the first double crosses were done in maybe the you know or around 1920 give or take a few years. Um and so then kind of the industry developed some in the, in the 20s and and into the 30s and by the 40s it was pretty much um I think it was pretty dominant. fascinating. Um
1: Well, so where can folks learn more about uh, Roots of Progress and what you're working on? Uh, I Yeah. So the
0: website is rootsofprogress.org. Lots of essays there about the history of technology and the philosophy of progress. And you can sign up for the mailing list to uh, get emails about new ones. Um, And uh, I'm pretty active on Twitter. Uh, I'm on Twitter as Jason Crawford. So follow me there.
1: Cool. Is there any way that if folks want to support what you're doing, um, is that is that, yeah, is there a way absolutely. to support or is that not something that you publicize?
0: Yeah. So we just launched, uh, we just launched as a, uh, as a new nonprofit organization. And, uh, on the website, rootsofprogress.org, you can find ways to support. We take, uh, Patreon, uh, monthly Patreon donations, or you can make a one time through PayPal or, um, uh, or other methods. So all, all the info is right there. Awesome.
1: Well, thanks so much, Jason. It's fascinating. And, uh, and I think the work that you do is very compelling and, uh, I just I, I'm just fascinated by it I think it's super super interesting uh, so even selfishly I think it's really cool uh, but thanks for yeah, taking time out of your day to chat with us uh, rootsofprogress.org yeah
0: yep that's it absolutely this has been great uh, I agree with you this stuff is super fascinating and uh, hey this has been a fun chat thanks a lot for having me on yeah likewise